This is Method Not Magic, the college admission and test preparation podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Ryan Blodgett from Marcy Education talking with Sean Steensma from Marcy Education. We are going to be talking through some best practices for studying for the LSAT, what the test looks like, how and when to get started, and hopefully help everybody out in getting a start to thinking about what the LSAT looks like and how preparing for it might look for them. Sean, how about let's talk a little bit about the format of the exam. So I understand the LSAT is a lot different from high school tests like the SAT and the ACT. What does the LSAT look like now? Yeah, it's quite different. The one section that is going to be similar is reading comp. So there's one reading comprehension section. Then there's a section called logical reasoning, which asks single questions about how an argument works. And then there's a section that's usually called logic games or analytical reasoning. That section is a little bit shorter and has, I think, typically 23 questions. In addition to that, there's an experimental section. So when you take the test, it's going to have four sections total, the logical reasoning, the reading comp, and the analytical reasoning. But then there's also an extra section that's experimental that could be any one of those. And each of the sections has the same amount of time, 35 minutes each. That makes sense. And and do those sections, are they in the same order or predictable order, or does it vary? It varies. And when you take the actual test, you won't know which one is experimental, at least not until afterwards, because if you got two of one type, then one of them was experimental, but you still wouldn't know for sure which one it was. Oh, okay. We've both been working on the LSAT for a long time. I took the LSAT before I went to law school. So we both know it's a very difficult test. Uh, so how about let's talk about some of the things that make it such a difficult test. So I know there's logical structure, the format, the level of difficulty of reading, but let's get in a little more detail. So what are some of the big reasons you think of that make it uh, such a hard test to take and to study for? Yeah, I think one of the major things is, like you said, it's just not like other standardized tests. Even the reading comp, which is the one that kind of sounds most like what you'd see on an SAT or ACT, is a much higher level of uh, reading. It's all going to be stuff that is from specialized fields. In many cases, it's experts talking to experts, and it's not necessarily on topics of law. Uh, Some of them are, but even the reading comp is pretty hard. And then the other sections, as you mentioned, are much different than anything that you'd see. The logical structure question is just something that most students aren't used to thinking about. Right. And I know the they really play off of some of those very fine, precise details in questions like that to a much greater extent than a lot of other tests do. Uh, I know I've seen a lot of questions where differences between things like many and most or some and most or always and usually can be the difference between a right and a wrong answer. And we're not often used to paying such close attention to those kind of details You know, we usually interpret people's statements the way that we assume they intended them, not how they necessarily literally mean. And the LSAT is very, very literal and precise in a way often designed to, I think, trick the reader. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And it makes you, that's a really good point about what's difficult about it. It it makes you pay attention differently. We're used to paying attention when we read something to like the subject, the verb, the object, but it makes you pay close attention to things like helping verbs. Where if if it says may or must, those are completely different things. And typically those are the kind of things we don't focus on 
when we're reading. So how does the process for prepping for this test look like compared to other tests? And I guess to start with, when should you start studying for the LSAT? I think most test takers are going to find that they'll be much more successful if they can give themselves several months to be able to prep for the test. So if, if you know when you're going to take the test and you have that end goal in mind of, of what score you want to get, you're going to probably want to plan uh, several months, three to four. I've even worked with people who work closer to a year because that also depends on how much time you have to work towards it. It's Everybody's going to need to take a lot of study time to prepare total. And if you're working full-time or you're a full-time student, you may just have to squeeze it in, which means you're going to need a longer total prep time to get ready to do really well on the test. Sure. And I could imagine for a lot of people, it could make sense to try to cram in a lot of that over the summer if you have the time, if you if you are a student, uh, or maybe if you just graduated. But sure, if you're working and turning or in school full time, I could definitely see hard to fit in as you go. So what's the first step like in that process? Like how should someone get started uh, when they're first going to start studying for the test? The first thing you want to do is take a baseline test. And that's going to be important to tell you where you are, obviously. But also, if if you know what your goal is going to be, what kind of score you want to have for the schools that you want to apply to, you can then really start to think about what that's going to look like in terms of your preparation process. So you want to start with a baseline test. And the good thing about that is that the LSAC has released a lot of tests. So you'll be able to get a lot of tests to be able to work from. The tests that you'll get will be four-section tests, which is like the test that you would take on test day. Uh, but with changes in the format, which we'll talk about a little bit more later on, that uh, will change the way that it's going to be scored. Because three sections are scored on your actual test that you'll do on test day. Your baseline test, it would be based on four. But it will still give you a dependable score to know where you're starting from. And it also is going to be the same format and the same question, the same length. Everything is really the same. It's just the way it's scored is slightly different on the actual test day. The important thing about having that baseline is knowing where you're starting from knowing what sections you're going to need to spend more and less time on. And then also you want to have a good idea of what your end goal is going to be. And so you can kind of see how much time you're going to need to get there. Another thing you're going to want to think about before you get too far into studying for the LSAT is also taking a GRE baseline. Uh, over 70 law schools will accept the GRE. And so if that's something that's going to fit well, with the schools that you want to apply for, I would recommend that you also take the time to do a GRE baseline and just see how that test looks compared to the LSAT. I could also imagine that seeing those starting scores on the test would be really helpful in getting a sense of what kind of schools to look at down the line. What kind of improvement do you typically see in students? I mean, you kind of hinted at that with talking about like, if you're starting at a 160, you might figure you'll be able to land in the 170s with some prep. Um, and in the 140s, that's going to be tough. What, what kind of improvement do you think it's reasonable to target? So it definitely varies a lot from person to person. I think most people, by putting in a fair amount of time, work, effort, really getting to know the test, are able to bring up their score by minimum of five points. And I think 
10 is a good target to have for a lot of people. Not everybody will hit that, but I think it's a good goal for people within a lot of ranges of scores. Bigger numbers definitely happen sometimes. Uh, I know I've had students that I worked with that saw their scores go up by 15 points or more, but it's not, it's not common. And it's something I think a lot of people starting out assume it's a kind of test where just I feed hours into it and I get score improvements back. And no matter what I start with, I can get any score. I just have to do it the right way and put in enough time, which is true only to a limited extent. I think everybody has kind of a a top that they can get to. The hard part is there's no way to know what your your kind of top out score is. And even if you've done a lot of work, you still might not be there yet. So it's it's very difficult, I think, for a lot of people to decide, should I take the test again? Is it worth putting in more time and effort? And there's never a really good answer to that, but it'll depend on individual circumstances, where you're at already, what your goals are, how much time you have, and so on. So it'll be a very complicated individual kind of thought process. So how about for for after you take that baseline test? What should be some of the tools that someone should use for studying the test? I know we talked about doing a lot of practice tests, which there's a ton of them released out there. What other things are especially helpful? And what's the best way to get practice tests? I know that when I was studying, you you would get books, you know, the next 10 released LSATs, things like that. Uh, what What's the best approach now? Yeah, I mean, you could still get those, I suppose, if you wanted to. But um, the because the test is taken online, the best way to prep for it and practice on those tests is going to be to use electronic versions of the test so that you can get used to what the tool uh, looks like and how that works. And so for about $100, you can get an LSAC access account where you can get to use their electronic test format for any of the release tests that have been available. So that's probably the best way to go about getting those tests. In addition to having the access to those tests, I really like to use the PowerScore Logic Games Bible. It's very, very methodical, and you can basically go through by a type of game and master that completely and then get new techniques and and you'll be able to quickly sort of see how to do that very odd type of question in general and then get to some of the good tips and tricks for getting to the specific questions and the specific types of games that they use. I know before the test switched to the digital format a couple of years ago, I would almost always start students out working with the PowerScore Logic Games Bible and the Super Prep books um, and then switch mostly to doing practice sections after that. Uh, now with the online digital tests, some of which have answer explanations on them, it's there's potential to shortcut that process, do a little more digital work. But I know the paper stuff is still there. It's helpful. And some people like working on the test more in paper. I've found that the difference between the digital and the paper test is not as big as some people might think. And I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later. So I think personally, it is fine for students to do uh, not all, but a fair amount of their studying on paper. You you'd mentioned that there are a lot of practice tests available. I know through the LSAC, the Power Prep Plus service, the $100 uh, access that you talked about, they include something like 90 practice tests. What's your opinion on the quality of all those tests? Like, are they all good to use? I know some of them are a little bit older. They're they're up into the 90s now. I think the tests in the ones and teens are from the 1990s, if I remember. How usable are those older materials still? I've 
really never used ones in the time that I've been doing this that are lower than maybe the 40s. And that was even like a couple of years ago. The test does have some subtle changes to the format that makes the older tests a little bit less applicable. They now have paired passages in reading. And so you'll see those in, I think, ones from maybe around 60 up. And then they also change. They used to have like two-part questions sometimes on logical reasoning, and they don't tend to do that anymore. You can also see some trends that change. But with 90 tests, I mean, hopefully nobody is doing all 90. So you can focus Mm -hmm. a little bit more on slightly older ones to build up your skills and then use the most recent ones to do full practice tests. I could see some value in perhaps doing, oh, something like every other, every third or every fourth test starting somewhere in maybe the 50s. Uh, That way you're you're sure to leaving yourself more tests if you wind up leading more later. Uh, I know... Unlike the ACT and SAT, where most everyone takes them multiple times, and some people even take them three or four times, the LSAT is a test a lot of people just take once, although I understand that's changed a little bit. I know whenever I took it, it was relatively uncommon to take it a second time. And in fact, the average score improvement on a retake the year I took it was negative one point. So on average, people's scores decreased on retakes. But I know that's no longer the case. There is a lot less stigma around retaking it. A lot more people do retake it. Do you you generally tell students going into the process to assume it's likely that they'll retake or that they really shouldn't? Or how, how do you handle that thought process? Well, I would emphasize that it's really important not to take it until you are really confident that you're ready to get a score that you would be happy with. So it's not a test to just go in and kind of see how it goes, which some people will do with the ACT and SAT, as you mentioned, and just kind of figure whatever happens, happens. I don't think that's a good way to approach the LSAT. It's probably good, though, to have in your mind as a test taker that it doesn't have to be all or nothing kind of one and done process because the LSAT is a test that for a lot of people is going to make them feel anxious about taking it. And so it can a little bit decrease that if you can have in your mind, if I need to, I can take it again. But I wouldn't recommend taking it and sort of just hoping that you'll get to a score that you want, especially if you haven't been consistently at or above that score in practice tests. Sure. One nice thing about all those practice tests being out is you can really get a good sense of what you're likely capable of scoring based on what you're capable of scoring on those practice tests. You know, nobody scores five points higher on the day of the real test than they did on their last four practice tests. Some people score five points lower, but nobody goes five higher. Uh, It's hard to go that other way. Yes. I also, I I know the LSAC has a uh, service they started doing relatively recently called Score Preview that can help take away some of that stress and anxiety about the test a little bit. So the way it works is my understanding is you you pay the LSAC something like $40 for the privilege of getting to see your score before it becomes official. I know you can only do it the first time you take the test though, and that's including if you sit for a test and cancel it. It just has to be only the first time you sit for the test. But if you to sign up for it, pay for that service. They'll send you your score, give you a few days to decide if you want to keep it or get rid of it. And if you get rid of it, it's as if you canceled the test halfway through, you know, as if you just walked out of the room halfway through the test, which means law schools see that cancellation, but they have no idea why you canceled your score. And a canceled score is certainly better than a score that's a lot lower than you're capable of. So 
I've had some students take the test and use that service. Nobody so far has actually canceled their score using it that I've worked with. But I think just knowing that you can takes down so much of the pressure because uh, it is a very high pressure test. You know, it counts for perhaps somewhere in the neighborhood of half or a third of the value of your total application. And that's a lot to put on one three or so hour experience. So anything you can do to cut down the pressure a little bit, I think is very valuable. So you mentioned that you feel like there's not a big difference between the paper and the electronic format in terms of prep. So can you talk a little bit more about why that doesn't necessarily make as big a difference as it might seem like? Sure. So the, the main reason is because the digital version is so feature rich. Both versions have the same exact kinds of questions, the same time per section. They're structured the same way. You, If you look at a test from before they switch to digital or after, you can't tell which one was originally digital and not unless you know the date the switch happened. There's no substantive difference in the content, the structure, the timing. But you can do on the digital test most of the things you'd want to do on a paper test. Through the software they have set up when you take the test, and this is all available for the digital practice tests that are part of that service we mentioned earlier, you can flag questions, you can cross out answer choices, you can hide answer choices, you can underline, you can highlight in a few different colors. Actually, that's one you can't even do on the real test is highlight. So the only major thing that you would want to do on the test that you can't on the digital format is write other words and symbols. You might want to circle things. You might want to write words, so annotate a reading passage or write your setup for a logic cam. You can't do that on the actual test or the test questions anymore, but you use scratch paper. You're allowed scratch paper for the test, and writing all those things on scratch paper is not that much different from writing it on the actual test. There's just a little bit of a difference having to get used to going back and forth, you know, looking up at the test down to your scratch paper rather than having both right next to each other. And the fact that on reading, you have to write your annotations, you know, label like paragraph one annotation, that kind of thing, instead of just putting it next to the paragraph on the sheet, just a tiny bit less efficient. But uh, other than that, it's very, very similar. And there are minor gains to efficiencies, like the way you can flag a question is very obvious. So there's virtually no chance that you could flag a question and then forget that you had flagged it. You also have a timer that's on the screen. So you always know exactly how much time you have left. I know for years and years when the LSAT was in person, uh, it would always be necessary to think about and plan these sort of elaborate timing mechanisms to know how much time you had, because when the LSAT was in person on paper, you couldn't even wear a digital watch. So there were techniques about using an analog watch and setting it to 35 minutes before noon at the start of every section and things like that that were frustrating and easy to mess up. And it's so much nicer not to have to do that. Some people get kind of nervous about having the time so upfront and, and there, but it's something you can definitely get past. You can kind of get used to not checking it too often uh, with practice. But overall, this means the format structure, the way you actually take it all together, it's very, very similar to on paper. I even had a few students that I was working with when the switchover happened, some of which took the test once on paper and once on digital. And Everybody told me it felt just about the same. It wasn't a big switchover. It was fine. So now I'm confident to say it's fine to do some of your study work on paper. 
you should do enough study work digitally that you're really used to the format, very comfortable with the software, you know, no surprises there. But um, it, it's totally fine if you do some of your work on paper and start on paper. I'll often have students do their baseline test on paper because it's a lot easier to do uh, administratively and it works just as well in getting a valid starting score. Yeah, that's great. I had a student in that transition too. And the only thing he had to do was really train himself to read carefully on the screen, which even a lot of times I'll have test takers work from a PDF on screen if they don't have like the digital access on the LSAC website, just so that they're still used to always processing it without the ability to have it on a piece of paper. Because on reading, sometimes that can make a difference. Why don't we talk a little bit about some of the particular ways of studying for the individual sections? And so this is certainly a topic that could we could talk for hours about, but maybe just a quick overview of, you know, what's the best way to start working on getting ready for logic games, logical reasoning, reading comp. Yeah, I like Logic Games Bible, as we mentioned, or also just really focusing on games, which is the first section for most people, because for most people, it's their lowest incoming score and the place where they're going to be able to get the quickest, biggest jump in their score. And so being very methodical and first mastering the basic linear game and then mastering more complicated linear games and moving on to grouping games and others and building that skill by really mastering each different type is really important. And a book like the Games Bible just helps you to focus on one at a time instead of trying to sort of do sections from the start where you're intermixing all different kinds of games. You really focus on total mastery of one type and then move on and master the next type. Yeah. How about uh, the logical reasoning section? What have you found to be helpful there? That's a section that every prep source I've seen treats differently. It's not like the logic games where there sort of is a perfect way to go about it and you'll only see very minor differences in iconography and things like that. Logical reasoning, lots of different books and classes and tutors. They have different names for different kinds of questions. They differentiate them in different way. I know some books say that there's 25 or 30 different kinds of questions and you have to know each question type, how to go about it and what to look for. I like to think of logical reasoning a little more simply and holistic. I think of questions as being primarily three broad categories, each of which has a few subcategories. But depending on the problem, the main thing students need to get really good at for that section is correctly identifying the conclusion of an argument, like exactly what clause in the text is the conclusion. And this is something a lot of people aren't used to. We're used to hearing an argument and internalizing a sort of summary version of the argument and the conclusion. And like we talked about earlier, how the LSAT plays off on those minor word differences and very precise features of strict reasoning principles it means it's really important to know exactly the conclusion as written and not a simplified or slightly changed internalized version of it. People also need to get used to trying to predict the answers to some kinds of questions. There are certain kinds of questions that it can be beneficial to graph out the logic similar to how we do on the logic games. So to work on these kind of skills, for the most part, it's just about grinding through a lot of practice questions. But 
when doing so, it's important that students do so in a way that's mindful and I guess in detail. It's not very helpful to just do a ton of problems. It's helpful to both do a ton of problems and spend a lot of time going over those problems, really making sure that you understand them in depth. You know why the right answer is right. You know why the wrong answers are wrong. You know how best to get there. And for problems that you miss, those should take more time than anything else to go back over because you really want to figure out for any problem you can like that, why you missed it, how you could have thought differently about it, how you should think differently about similar problems in the future. That's a time-consuming process, but the best way to go about doing a lot better on those kinds of questions. Yeah, I, I find too the section that I spend the most time with with most people is that one because there's so much, it's so individualized and so much back and forth of, of really figuring out what's happening. But yeah, I think the, the two key things that I'll emphasize too are if you know what you're looking for, you're going to find it and you won't get distracted by an answer that's not what you're looking for, but seems like it might fit. Um, and then to be able to focus on the specifics, how it's often easier to see what makes a wrong answer wrong, like those words that are too strong, for instance. Absolutely. And I know for the last section, the reading comp section, uh, I know this one we, we talked about a little before how it's the most similar to tests that people are likely to be more familiar with and gives passages questions about them. So a much more kind of comfortable style. Uh, but the passages are also really difficult for the most part. So how would you suggest someone go about working on that section? Is it just about being a strong reader and being used to the section, or is there more to learning and practicing techniques or strategies? Yeah, I think there's definitely a learning curve for it. The test asks an interesting mixture of main idea and very detail-oriented questions. And the first question is almost always, what's the main point? For many test takers, that's actually an incredibly difficult question to do at the beginning. And it's very frustrating because it feels like I should already know this. So for a lot of test takers, that's actually going to be a good question to skip initially because you'll understand the main point better when you've gone through the details. Um, a lot of the detail questions also, when you have a sense of where to look, you can eliminate very readily what's what's wrong in the wrong answers because that you can use that detail to kind of anchor your answer that you're going to give. Thanks. Thanks for all that, Sean. We got to go through a lot of good information here, talk about the changes in the test, how to get started, the importance of a baseline, some good materials to use. Uh, I'll encourage everyone, plan your study process out far in advance, but take comfort in the knowledge that in terms of tests you need to take to be a lawyer, the LSAT is the hardest one. Uh, the bar exam that you'll do after law school is, in my opinion, comparatively an easier test because it's a test of knowledge. You read a bunch of stuff, you memorize a lot and answer questions about it. It's not like the LSAT, which is a test of acquired skills. So do reach out uh, to me, Ryan Plodgett, or Sean Steams at Marks Education with questions about the LSAT, or if you're interested in doing LSAT prep with us. And best of luck to everyone for the whole process of getting ready for the test. Thanks for talking with me, Sean. Thanks, Ryan. Mm -hmm.